0: morning, let me get live there, glad to have the opportunity to gather with God's people, have this opportunity to present some message from God's word, if you want to go ahead and open up to 1 Kings chapter 13, that's going to be our main passage today, and uh, I forgot to turn it on, there we go, all right. And this is a story, a passage that I really like to study and speak about. It just kind of checks a lot of boxes for me. Uh, It's got some history. We've got archaeological evidence that ties into some of the events here. We've got uh, some politics and intrigue going on with it as well. Uh, And it's got application, I think, very broadly for both new Christians and old Christians as well. Uh, It's also a less familiar story. We don't talk about it as much as we do some other ones. Part of that's because it's got kind of a tragic ending, uh, and so sometimes we're not as, as comfortable talking about those things, but it does nevertheless have an uh, important message, I believe, that we need to look at. So, first off, to kind of talk about some of the historical background, because I think we need to understand how that applies in this case, uh, this story takes place just after, shortly after, the division of the Kingdom of Israel. If you'll remember, Solomon... Uh, you know, was David's son, and he worked, uh, did a lot of public works, did a lot of building, uh, was very successful, very prosperous, but when his son, Rehoboam, took over, uh, his son, you know, the people said, hey, we've been worked really hard by Solomon, we need a break, you know, let's, let's back off on this, can you lighten up the, the workload on us a little bit, and he said, no, I'm not going to do that, and so when they did that, the uh, Ten of the tribes rebelled. Everybody except Judah and Benjamin divided off. And they said, forget it then. We're not going to follow the house of David anymore, if that's how you're going to be. And they divided up. And they chose this new person, Jeroboam, as their new king. And God had already prophesied that all this was going to happen previously. He sent a prophet to tell Jeroboam, hey, you're going to be king. Uh, And so this was from the Lord, because the Lord had seen how Solomon had not remained faithful. And he said, Because you have not remained faithful, I'm going to break off part of the kingdom from you. Now, you know, I think the plan was that this was going to be a temporary thing, because if you look at the end of chapter 12 where that happens, you know, God says, Hey, don't fight over this. This this is probably one of the most peaceful civil wars that there's ever been, because God said, Stop it. Y'all don't fight. Just let this happen. Um, But nevertheless, that was the same. So you have this new king, uh, Jeroboam, who's in here. And. He starts building things up, and we see here in uh, the end of chapter 12, it talks a little bit about some of the things that he did, uh, and and how this event came about. So you need to understand the historical uh, background to this, that we're dealing with a divided kingdom and a newly divided kingdom, and Jeroboam, the king we're talking about here, is a new king, and he's kind of in this position of trying to establish his power uh, and, and consolidate his power. So... Let's get into some of real quick of the, the archaeological evidence, and I mentioned this before. We have, this is one of those interesting stories that we actually have found archaeological evidence of a bunch of the events that ties into it and establishes this context. So if you look at uh, 1 Kings chapter 12, at the, end of, the uh, end of that chapter, it talks about Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country and lived there. So he kind of established that as his first capital. And from there he went out and built up Peniel. So this was kind of his first base of operations. And you think about that, if you hear about this building uh, and this building up of a city, you would expect to see some sort of evidence of that, because it's a rapid urban development, you know, it's building up, uh, you know, a a rapid period of development and growth in a city. Well, we have actually located the site of Shechem, it's known as Tel Balata, and it was found back in 1913, and it was actually relatively easy to find as far as historical sites go, because we have multiple other historical sources that give descriptions of its location relative to certain you know, passes through the mountains or relative to other towns that we know about or relative to other natural uh, geographic features. And so with putting these all together, they were able to find where Shechem was and they started digging and lo and behold, there it is. And when they looked through it, as they dig through the layers, they did find the layer that corresponds to the time of Jeroboam, and it does indeed show a rapid work, a lot of activity going on, building up and growing up and developing and, and bring, uh, growing up this city. So we have this great correspondence here between the hard evidence and the history that we've dug for and what the Bible says about it. Then the Bible also tells us here in, at the end of chapter 28 or 20, uh, end of chapter 12 that Jeroboam set up these sites of worship at Bethel and at Dan, and these became long-term false worship, but they were worship sites for the northern Israel, uh, kingdom throughout the time that it was in existence until it went into exile. Well, they've actually dug and developed, found this location of Tel Dan, uh, which is the ancient pagan altar site that Jeroboam developed. And they discovered that back in 1966 up around uh, the uh, a different area now, what's, you know, uh, the northern end of Israel. And if you go through that, they can find distinct periods where that altar started and they actually tracked it all the way back to the period of the Judges because that that site is mentioned throughout the Bible in several different time periods. But you've got you know one period again that corresponds to the time period of Jeroboam and it shows that there was a development and an improvement and expansion of that particular uh, altar. And so we can trace it right back again to this particular time. And it's not that we have to have archaeological evidence to know that these things are true. Uh, it's helpful, though, because, you know, there's some people that don't have the background of faith necessarily yet, and they aren't as familiar with it. And so it's nice to be able to uh, point to some of this and say, hey, this isn't all just completely uh, unsupported. We have some real extraneous sources that we can tie this thing into to show that this is happening. And by the way, if you're interested in that kind of thing, uh, evidences and stuff, There's gonna be a conference on February seventeenth and eighteenth here in the area Uh, by the Discovery Center. They're having their Discovery Institute having their annual faith and science culture uh, that does a lot of those types of evidences. So if you want some information on that, I can tell you about that too. So we do have archaeological evidence for a lot of the events and backgrounds going on in this story. Then we get into the kind of the political thing. We've already talked about how this was a recently divided kingdom, and so you're dealing with a new king uh, who's trying to consolidate his power and trying to uh, make sure that his people aren't going to go back to the old king, who happens to be just over the way. And so he's thinking to himself, we're, we're told his specific motivations here uh, in 1 Kings twelve twenty six. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will likely revert back to the house of David if these people go to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they'll again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they'll kill me and return to King Rehoboam. So he says, I've got a problem. I've got these people of Israel, and the law says that they're supposed to be going down to Jerusalem, which you can see is kind of the northern end of Judah, not that far from a lot of people in Israel, to offer their sacrifices. And Jerusalem also happens to be the capital city for the other king that we're trying to break off from. So if these people are going down there on a regular basis, uh, they're going to be reattached and reinforced this connection with the former king and the former ruling house. I don't want that. He says, I, I need to figure out an alternative. And so what he does is he develops these uh, altars, and he builds one at Bethel, which you can see Bethel's kind of at the lower end of the green, uh, right there close to Judah. And then he builds another one up there at the northern end, at Dan, and says, okay, these are your new worship sites, Israel. Uh, from now on, I'm going to, you, know, you don't have to go all the way down to Jerusalem. You can just come to these worship sites and do your worshiping here instead. And he builds two golden calves and sets one up at each location. Because, again, think about that. You know, The Israelites will remember, oh, golden calf, that sounds familiar. We've done that before. Which, again, is a good way to lead people astray. You pull something that they think is vaguely familiar and uh, it puts them that way. But it wasn't, hey, you know what, it's too far for you people to travel down to Jerusalem. It was, I don't like you going down there. I want to disconnect you from the other king, which means also connecting you from your previous faith. Excuse me. So, uh, we have this context going on, and we have the story that's going on. So, uh, I'm not going to go through it all kind of word for word, but you have the whole chapter of, of chapter 13, and we want to talk about it. So, we have a main character here, and the main character of this is not really identified. He's simply identified as the, a man of God from Judah, um, and so we don't really know a name. We don't really know specifically where in Judah he's from, um, how far he had to travel, or anything like that. Uh, but he's given a mission. And God says, Go to Bethel, where that altar is that Jeroboam has set up, and give him a message. Make a prophecy against that altar, deliver your message, and then come back home. And that was it. So here we have, with the context going on, Basically, this is a strike mission in enemy, enemy territory. God says, you've got a prophecy. You go in there, deliver your payload, come back home. And God gives him some specific uh, pronouncements. He says, we want you to make a prophecy against the altar. And by the way, there's going to be a miraculous sign that's going to accompany that to verify your prophecy. And then I'm going to protect you on the way, but do not eat any bread or drink any water. And do not come back by the same way that you came. So God gave him some very specific instructions for this mission. And as we read through and we look at what's going on, uh, and by the way, context wise, Bethel's only about five miles from the northern boundary of Judah. So it would have been pretty easy to do a little day trip. You know, just walk up there five miles, make your pronouncement, come on back. Uh, it wasn't like he's was having to travel 50, 100 miles, something like that to do this. So we start reading through chapter 13, and as it unfolds, he comes out and he goes to Bethel, like he's supposed to do. and Jeroboam happens to be right there, which God probably was ready for. And while he's there, the prophet stands up and makes a pronouncement. And he says, This altar, a son named Josiah, will be born to the house of David. And on this altar he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who are now making offerings here. And human bones will be burned on you. And then he says... This is going to be the sign that this will happen. The altar will be split apart, and the ashes on it will be poured out. So, very specific pronouncement. He says, I'm, I'm going to give you the name. I'm going to tell you exactly who's going to do it and exactly what they're going to do. And by the way, this prophecy did, in fact, come true a few hundred years later, a few generations later. Uh, Josiah from Judah went up and dug up a bunch of bones from the graves that surrounded it and burned them on the altar and you know, desanctified into that but here's this prophet who comes out and he says, not only can I make you a very specific prophecy, which you'll see whether this comes to pass or not, but I'll give you a, a sign right here today that this prophecy is true. This altar is going to split and the ashes are going to fall out. Well, Jeroboam's standing there and he can't deal with this uppity prophet. He, he can't let this slide. He, here's this guy who's come from the, the enemy kingdom and is coming up here and publicly making pronouncements ...against one of his sites of worship that he's tried to establish. So he says, I can't let this go. And so he stretches out his hand he says, seize him. He's not going to wait to see whether the altar actually does crack and spill its ashes like the guy says. He says, seize him. But when he did, God intervenes. And so we see that, verse 4, when he stretches out his hand... ...the hand he stretched out toward the man shriveled up and he could not pull it back. So God struck Jeroboam immediately right there visibly... And also the altar was split apart and the ashes spilled out just as the word of the Lord had come from the man of God. So Jeroboam realizes he's not dealing with a faker here. He's dealing with the real power of God and he's better deal with this differently. So he says to the man of God, intercede with the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored. So the man interceded with the Lord and the king's hand was restored. Okay, so power of God is very evident in this story. Uh, Everybody should know, including the man of God, that God's looking after him, and he's under his protection, and he knows exactly what he's supposed to do. So then the king says, he tries to get a little clever here, verse 17, come home with me and have something to eat, and I will give you a gift. Yeah, it it doesn't take a genius to realize that that's probably not a wise idea. Um, So, Even if he hadn't had prior orders, the prophet probably would have known not to trust the guy who just tried to have him captured and seized for speaking out against his altar. Uh, But nevertheless, the man of God says, hey, no, I can't do that. Even if you gave me all of your riches, it doesn't matter because I've already got orders from God. I've already got a warning from God not to eat bread, not to drink water, and not to return the way I came from in here. Which, that might sound familiar. Everybody remember the wise men that came to see Jesus when he was born and they were warned in a dream not to go back the same way that they had come so that they didn't cross Herod's path again so God you know has given him this tactic he says hey get in there give your message get out I've got your back do not engage with the enemy just go ahead and get in there and get out so he knows what his specific warnings are not to eat bread not to drink water and he mentions this twice he tells Jeroboam in verses 8 through 10, and then later on, he encounters another prophet, and he tells the other prophet the same thing in verses 16 through 17. So there's no question here as to what the uh, orders, what the, the message that the young prophet had received was. And by the way, I'm saying young prophet, and I will talk about this older prophet that he encounters later on. Young and old may be relative things. We don't know, again, exactly how old they were, um, Old prophet may mean he was physically old. It may mean he had been a prophet for a long time. We have some prophets that serve as prophets for decades. We have other prophets that only serve for a year or two and just bring a certain single message that we know. Um, So we don't know the background specifically on that. And also, um, for comparison, again, we don't know their age, but it does say that he's older, so we kind of take a little bit of that. So uh, going on to kind of see what ends up happening real quick in the story, so after all this happens, the young prophet heads back on the road, and he's back on the road to Judah, and he goes apparently back by a different direction. And so the old, there was an old prophet who was living there in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all about this one. You can imagine all the talk that was going on about these events. This is a pretty dramatic situation. So they come home, and they tell this old prophet, hey, Dad, you've got to hear what happened today. This prophet showed up from Judah, and he made a pronouncement against the altar, and he said it was going to be this sign. The king tried to have him arrested. The king's hand shriveled. You know, his, you know, the prophet had God asked God to restore his hand, and then the altar broke apart. You know, all this going on. Well, the prophet, old prophet, was amazed by this, and so he says, "Which way did he go?" His sons pointed out the direction. He hops on a donkey and heads after the guy. And he finds the uh, other prophet seated under an oak tree, and he asks him, "Are you the man of God from Judah?" He says, "I am." So the older prophet from Bethel invites the younger prophet to his home. He says, hey, let me show you some hospitality. Let me take care of you on your journey. Uh, Come to my home, eat and drink, and and I'll make sure that you're taken care of. And the young prophet again says, no, I I appreciate that, but I can't do it. I can't go with you or eat, or drink water. I've been told by the Lord not to do that specifically. This is where it gets kind of sad, and, and, and we get off the rails here. The old prophet says... Verse 18, I too am a prophet, as you are. And an angel said to me by the word of the Lord, Bring him back with you to your house, so that he may eat bread and drink water. But he was lying to him. So the man of God returned with him and ate and drank at his house. We don't know exactly why the older prophet lied to him, as we're specifically told he did. Uh, you know, it may have been that there was an angel, and it was a, not actually an angel from the Lord somebody else coming in and interfering and giving him a false message. Uh, or it may have been that he just made this up because he thought, hey, this, is, you know, he wanted to help him. Uh, you know, it may have been bad, a bad motivation. Doesn't seem like it from the rest of the story, but probably he was just trying to help this guy out. Here's a, a young, newer prophet, you know, who's, who's in the, the trade, the same kind of area that he is, trying to follow the Lord. He wants to support him. He wants to encourage him and help him in that. And so he thinks he's helping him out here. Well, Unfortunately, that does not turn out to be the case. So they do go back to the house, and while they're sitting at the table, the word of the Lord came to the old prophet who had brought him back. So here we have a warning and a judgment against the young prophet because he has disobeyed the word of the Lord. And the real, again, the tragedy that starts to come in on this is there are probably good intentions, but they went wrong. And then it is the old prophet himself who ends up becoming the Instrument that has to bring the Lord's judgment upon the new prophet. He says, Because you defied the word of the Lord, you came back and ate, drank, ate, and drank where you're not to, therefore your body will not be buried in the tomb of your fathers. So they finish their meal. The prophet from Judah it's back on the road, and on his way, a lion meets him in the road and kills him. And his body is thrown down on the road, and both the donkey that he was riding and the lion were there. Well, this is clearly not a natural occurrence. If a lion's going to attack someone, They're not going to kill them, leave the body there, and leave the donkey standing there beside them. Either the donkey's going to take off in fear, or the lion's going to try to eat one or both. Uh, This is not a natural occurrence. So some people are going by the road, and they see this thing. You can just imagine how weird of a sight that would be. Here's this dead body laying there on the road with a lion on one side and a donkey on the other, both just standing there. Not natural behavior. So they come back, and they report this. Again, strange things going on in Bethel, the city where the old prophet lived. And the old prophet recognized what was going on. He said, this was the judgment. This must be the prophet from Judah. So he goes to pick him up. He says to his son, saddle the donkey. He goes back there. He finds the body. And indeed, the lion is just standing there, hasn't eaten it, hasn't attacked the donkey, just standing there beside it. So the prophet picks up the body of the man of God from Judah, puts it on his donkey, and takes it back home. And he buries him, and they mourn for him. So again, I don't think this was an evil intent on the part of the old prophet. I think really he cared about this young prophet. And he was wanting to help him out. You know? But because of the way that these things unfolded, because the word of the Lord was not followed, the tragic end is the young prophet is killed in a rather visible and obvious fashion that this is in fact a sign from the Lord. And the old prophet even tells his sons, "...when I die, bury me in the grave where he's buried, lay my bones beside his bones." For the message he declared will certainly come to pass. And indeed it did. So, not a happy story. Uh, It's kind of tragic the way that this happens. But it does have some important warnings for us. And I think we should heed the message that we can get of it. First thing I want us to think about is that it is dangerous to try to guess what God's reasoning is. Because that's what was going on here. The old prophet thinks, hey, you know what? God warned you not to eat or drink and he told you to go by a different way, but that was probably just to protect you from Jeroboam. You know, I, I, can, I can help you. Surely the danger has passed, and the word of the Lord no longer applies in this circumstance, and so you should be released from that warning. Well, when we start trying to guess God's reasoning and guess God's judgment, we are on completely thin ice, no, no ice at all. We do not have the standing or the time to do that. We are finite, limited beings, and we need to recognize that God's judgment and wisdom and understanding is far beyond ours. His perspective is far beyond ours. And we have numerous verses that remind us of this. Everybody knows the story of Job and and the things that he went through with the testing from Satan. But God tells him, hey, you know, his friends are there telling him, hey, this isn't right. You know, you've done something wrong. And Job says, no, I'm righteous. There's no reason I should be facing these, these tests and these punishments. But God has to tell him, chapter 38, verse 37, who has put wisdom in the heart or has imparted understanding to the mind? God says, whatever you think you know, understand that God, I, am the source of wisdom. And you can't get that wisdom and understanding but from me. So don't challenge me with the faculties that I have given you in the first place. Uh, Proverbs uh, warns us of this several times, verse starts out with chapter 3, verse 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. So Proverbs, with all of the wisdom and the ideas that that Solomon collected there and, and imparted, starts with this understanding that, hey, wisdom comes from God. And whatever you think you know and whatever knowledge you think you've accumulated, understand that you are... Just small fry compared to anything in God's perspective. You can't compare to that. Uh, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, the thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. We don't always understand God's plans. We don't understand what the purpose is. Um, you know, it may be in this case, besides protecting him from Jeroboam, there may have been other dangers that may have been going on. It may have simply been that God wanted this prophet from Judah to kind of wipe the dust off of his feet figuratively to be an example to the people in the northern kingdom and say hey y'all are under judgment you can't follow this way anymore and i'm not even going to stick around long enough to have a piece of bread or a drink of water i'm heading straight back home that may have been god's intent we don't know but regardless he had this warning he had these directions and it's dangerous to try to say what it is that god does it and we we are warned even in the new testament about what the limits of our own understanding are first corinthians thirteen twelve. Now we see only a reflection as in a mirror then after the judgment when we are returned to God we shall see him face to face now i know in part then i shall know fully even as i am fully known second peter chapter 3 verse 9 the lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness instead he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance see if we look at god's plans and we look at the way things are unfolding we may think that doesn't look right to us god hurry up God do something differently. That's that's the wrong way to be, you know, for things to be unfolding. But God has a different plan. God may be giving somebody the opportunity to come to Him through certain actions that we aren't even aware of how God is working on their heart, and we don't want anyone to miss that opportunity. So, first thought is be very careful about trying to guess God's reasoning. And, and taken in its farthest form, you can even see this. We get things like cultural relativism, where people look at it and the process doesn't stop. You start pulling on certain threads and you can just unravel everything. You start saying, hey, you know what, that Bible was written for a different people, a different time, in a different culture. It doesn't apply to me today. It can go to that extent. So we have to maintain our firm foundation and trust in the word of the Lord as it's been revealed. Now, beside this, we have some lessons, I think, that are important for younger Christians. And again, when I say young and old Christians, I'm not talking about necessarily chronological age. You know, you may have somebody who's been a Christian a relatively short time, but has matured and studied and grown very quickly in their faith. You may have somebody who's well on in their age uh, physically, but has only recently come to, the, to Christ. And so young and old is, again, kind of a relative thing, but we're talking about your degrees of study and maturity and understanding of the faith. So for the younger Christians, the newer Christians, those who are not as far along uh, and matured in their faith yet— this passage has a lot of warnings as well. First, always check the message that you receive against God's word. Uh, you know, the prophet had a direct message from God, and God said, do it this way. If somebody else comes to him and says, hey, you know what, here's a different message, he should have gone back to God's word. Well, does this match the word that I've already received from the Lord? Because if it doesn't, I need to be careful and I need to follow what God's word is instead. Uh, example of New Testament, Acts chapter 17, verse 11, talks about the Bereans. And when Paul went and preached to them, one of the things they were praised for is they didn't just take Paul's word for it. Now, Paul was learned and he was experienced. He was qualified. He'd been trained and educated uh, in Jewish law and, and background. You know, he certainly had the authority for it in the background, but they still didn't take his word for it. They still went back and checked the scriptures. When he talked about the Messiah, they went back to see, oh, well, we're, Where's this idea of the Messiah come from? And what are the prophecies that have been fulfilled? And they went and double-checked the message to make sure that what they were receiving was consistent. And here's another warning. Be careful what source you go to in the first place. You know, don't go to TikTok. Don't go to YouTube. Um, don't, don't rely on those sources. They can be helpful as resources, but don't count on them as authorities. You know, a while back, Time Magazine came out with this whole series about different a whole separate uh, issue for angels and demons and judgment and all these things that were supposed to be coming out of the Bible. And I'm like, Time Magazine? Really, I'm going to accept that as an authority? But a lot of people do because that's all they know about, and they don't go back to the source. They don't go back to the actual Bible we have from God. That may be all they're exposed to. So be careful, especially as a new Christian, uh, what sources you consult and try to rely upon. Always go back to the Scripture itself as we've been received. We're further warned, hold on to that message. Once you've got this message that God's given us, hold on to it. Don't let other people come in and try to change it. Uh, Paul goes pretty far with his explanation on that, Galatians 1 8. Even if we, even if Paul himself, or one of the apostles, were to come to them, or even an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. And he says this twice. He, he really means this. He says, You've got the gospel. Hold on to it. You've received it. Don't let people come in and try to change it or tell you that there's something different than what God has already given to you. And, you know, ties right into our story. What did the old prophet tell the young prophet? He says, I received a message from an angel of the Lord. Well, (laughs) Paul says, even if you do get a message from the angel of the Lord, if it's different from the gospel you've already received, don't go buying it. Don't fall into that. So we're warned very specifically on that, and that's That's a good point for not just new Christians, but uh, all Christians. And ultimately, work out your own salvation. Philippians 2.12 says, Therefore, my friends, as you've always obeyed not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Ultimately, each of us is going to be ultimately accountable for our own souls. It doesn't matter what somebody's told us, what we heard, what you know, what our sources and authorities are, if we get up there at the judgment and we haven't followed the word of the Lord as revealed and the way of salvation as revealed through Christ, it doesn't matter. There's no justification, there's no excuse, there's no other authority that we can go to. And so each of us, remember, ultimately, is accountable individually for our own faith and what we choose to follow. So bear with those warnings. This also has some uh, lessons for some older Christians as well. And again, older, relative term, more mature, those who have been uh, walking the walk longer and you know, been more studied and matured, whatever it may be. Uh, but we need to be careful. First off, misleading others brings destruction on them and suffering to us also. Yeah, it was tragic that the young prophet died, but now the old prophet for the rest of his life is going to have to l- live with that. He knows that here is somebody who came to destruction because he had not given him the word of the Lord correctly. Whatever his good intentions may have been, he's going to have to live with this thought. And remember, we see in here, he takes him back and he mourns for him, which, right, he should. This is a tragic loss. This is a tragic death and should not have happened. But the older uh, follower of the Lord has to live with this burden now of knowing that he could have done something or, or, or... what he failed to do or did do wrong misled and led to the destruction of somebody else which is a tragic thought we don't want to have to live with that Uh, jesus warns against the stumbling block uh, in matthew chapter 8 verses 6 through 7 he says don't be the cause of that yes things are going to be out there that are going to cause people to stumble but hey you as a christian as a follower of god do not be one of those horses. woe to you if you are also experienced christians need to understand don't undermine others faith with your own freedom and they talk about this a little bit. Paul talks about this in the context of uh, eating food sacrificed to idols there in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. You know, yeah, the older Christian may understand certain things. He may have uh, mature understanding of certain theological issues or concepts. That, but just because he understands, that does not mean he needs to trip up a younger Christian by that. younger Christian may say, hey, I- I'm still not comfortable with this particular practice or this particular thing or whatever it is. My conscience is calling me to not engage in it. So, the older Christian shouldn't say, Oh, it's okay, go ahead and do something anyway. We need to understand if that's uncomfortable and the, the newer Christian is having trouble with that, reach out to them, teach them, educate them, but don't force them or encourage them to do something against their conscience until they're ready for that point. And, you know, this is an opportunity to teach. Again, people come to the Lord and come to understandings of their relationship with Him at different speeds sometimes people need milk. You know, they need baby food to start off. They need simple concepts. They're not ready for really complicated theology yet. And that's fine. Meet them where they're at and help them out. And there's an opportunity to educate them, but don't push them into something that they're not ready for yet until they're ready for it. Give them that opportunity. And then most important, I think, for the, the experienced Christian, the older Christian, for any Christian, is we need to faithfully pass on God's Word, both accurately and actively. You know, we have received a message from the Lord. We have the scripture. And we need to be out there explaining it and making an active attempt to bring that in front of people. The newer Christians, we need to encourage them in their studies. We need to bring messages to them and encourage them as well. Uh, And we need to stick with the truth as it has been revealed in God's scripture. As Paul said to the Corinthians chapter 15, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And he talks more about the other things that he says. So Paul says, look, I know that this has happened. And because I know that this has happened and because I have received the Lord's word, I have an obligation to newer Christians and to uh, those who have not yet found Christ to tell them about this and to accurately tell them about this, to tell them the truth That is embodied in God's scripture. So, like I say, these lessons for new old Christians, again, it's a relative term. Wherever you're at in your Christian walk, I think any of these lessons can apply to any of us. We just need to take the time to be aware of it. We need to reflect on what God has revealed to us. We need to stay faithful to it. And we need to be careful about how we pass it on uh, and explain it to other people. So kind of just a, a last final thought to wrap this up. And this is kind of the thing I struggled with as I was preparing this lesson. Where, what's the final thought on this? What's the, how do I wrap this up? Well, here's a thought. What if the old prophet had helped the young prophet get home instead? What kind of an opportunity might there have been for a connection between the people of God, between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, if he had done that? Instead of saying, hey, let me change what it is that God's already told you to do and bring you back in and have you do something my way instead? What if he said, okay, let me help you doing the thing that God has told you to do? What an opportunity was lost here. Again, the tragedy of the story, but that is something for us to think about. When we see somebody doing God's word and we see them trying to do the works for the kingdom, we don't need to be saying, hey, you know what, you should do it my way instead. Whether it's scriptural or not, we, you know, we need to look at that and say, okay, where's my opportunity to help you with what you're already doing for the kingdom? How can I uh, encourage you? How can I reinforce you in your walk that you're already trying to do for the Lord? So let's think about that. Ultimately, young, old, new, inexperienced, the point is we're all walking this Christian walk together. God has given us the church as a body, as a body. Uh, as, a, as a shared opportunity for us to be together. And we need to encourage one another. That's, that's the purpose that we have here. Encourage each other, spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day approaching. We don't know when the day is going to be, but we know it's coming. And the close, every second that passes brings us closer to the seconds being gone, the last chance to do anything with it. So we need to take every opportunity and every time that we have to take God's message to anybody who hasn't heard it, to deepen our own understanding. You know, Like I say, this message has application to old and new Christians alike, uh, broad application. I don't know where each of you are individually on this particular spectrum, you know, where you are in the walk. If you haven't come to Christ yet, this is your opportunity to do so. You have an opportunity. Don't let another moment pass because we may not have more that we know about. If you are just starting out on your walk and you want to study some more, you have that opportunity as well. Seek out uh, some other experienced Christians. Spend time in the Word. Study the Lord, uh, the Word as it's been given to us. If you're an older Christian, look for an opportunity to, to mentor and encourage others. Or maybe you're struggling with some issues as to how you've been dealing with the Lord's Word that you've been entrusted with. And you need some prayers on that point. We can do that too. Uh, wherever you are in the walk, wherever you fall on that spectrum, we want to give you that opportunity. So please come forward as we stand and say. Oh, uh-huh.